If you have your Bible this morning, I would love for you to turn with us to John chapter 1. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, I'd love for you to, to open to John 1. Uh, I would love for you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. Oh, and if you have your Bible today, please go ahead and open to John chapter 1. Now, before you think I'm having a stroke or that I just really want you to turn to John chapter 1, I better introduce our new series to you. Uh, We're today beginning a series called The Big Ten, Uh, looking at, from now until Easter, looking at 10 stories of Jesus' life that all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include in their gospels, Uh, kind of four takes on the same story. But should you fear that these are just repetition, like my uh, encouragement for you to turn to your Bibles this morning, they're not exact copies. If you've read all four Gospels, you know that they're not just repeating each other. They're not all identical. All of them have their own kind of unique perspective and experience with Jesus. Matthew uh, was a Jewish disciple of Jesus. Mark, according to tradition, uh, wrote his Gospel first, recording the stories of Peter's sermons as Peter told about his experiences with Jesus. Luke, as best we know, never actually met Jesus, but was a Gentile doctor who took upon himself this task of carefully investigating the events of Jesus' life and held interviews and and, and took from other Gospels and expanded on different parts of that. And and then, of course, we have John, who uh, wrote probably last and wasn't just a disciple, uh, but was one of Jesus' inner three that had some more unique experiences with Jesus. And yet, despite their differences, all four of these writers have these ten stories that all of them include. Even John, who, like I said, probably wrote last, knew that three other times these stories were recorded and yet thought they were important enough to include again. Now, you might think that the obvious starting place in the gospel would be with Christmas. I mean, what story doesn't begin with the introduction of the hero? But actually, it's only Matthew and Luke that include Christmas, include the birth of Jesus. In fact, the starting place that they all have in common isn't even Jesus. It's a man named John, or John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Matthew says this about John in his gospel, Matthew 3. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is who was spoken of through the, prophets, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. With this introduction of John, we see that John was a compelling figure, to say the least. And he would have been, even for the original audience uh, of his time. Not only did he live in the wilderness wearing a camel robe on a diet of locusts and honey, which, by the way, I'm still waiting for that diet fad to take off. uh, But beyond his physical appearance and dietary habits, John was someone special. Luke tells us about the circumstances surrounding his birth, that there was a a miraculous nature to it, that he was born to parents well past childbearing years who had never been able to have children and grew up around Jesus, having been cousins. We see in Luke's gospel, Mary come to Elizabeth when she finds out that she'll be carrying Jesus. And we're told that John leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb. And even though John's in the New Testament, He kind of embodies all of these characteristics of Old Testament prophets. 
He's kind of a bridge between the two. He speaks boldly of God's truth, calling out sin and calling people to repentance. He calls out righteous leaders for their religious leaders who for their, their evil and their hypocrisy. He offers us new hope and them new hope of this new beginning through baptism. And it's this message that John has and the way that he goes about that that makes him pretty popular. It's evident with the coming of John in this ministry that he begins that something new is happening. He speaks with authority and he calls people to change lives. He has disciples and followers and entire cities and regions of people who come out to the river edge to, to hear this preacher in the wilderness. But even though John is the opening act, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he understands from the beginning that he is not the main show. But even though as, as John is gaining in, in popularity with all this popularity, people are coming out and this bold message that he has, even then the, the question quickly arises, you know, is he the one? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? Is he the Messiah? And John says this about himself in verse 19. John chapter 1. It says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize in water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John is quick to point out that he's not the promised rescuer, but that he still does have a place in this story. And John knows that for many intents and purposes, his job is road construction. Not literally, but he does quote Isaiah in his job description. I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. You see, it would be a common practice in that day if a king or a dignitary or somebody uh, official was coming to your city. They would send a messenger, often even months ahead of time, to let them know not only the good news of the arrival of this dignitary, but to help this city prepare for that arrival. And part of that process was to prepare the road. And so they'd call up Bob's barricades for those big orange barrels, and they'd level the high spots, and they'd raise the potholes, and they'd clear any obstacles that might prevent this king or this official from getting through. Of course, John was doing much the same, but not preparing a physical road. He was clearing a path and removing obstacles that might block people's hearts. In Matthew 3, that we just read a few minutes ago, John's message is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Do you know what Jesus' very first sermon recorded is in Matthew? Matthew four seventeen it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John is beginning people to hear the message that Jesus will come and speak. Part of the reason that John is so popular, in addition to this, is that he's baptizing in the Jordan River, which doesn't sound all that significant to us until you realize that this river is the same place that Israel entered into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 
In other words, it was clear just by this location that something big was happening. But it wasn't about John. It was all about Jesus. You see, John's purpose was to come and prepare the people's hearts so they would be ready to respond to the one come after him, Jesus. And this was John's testimony, verse 29, chapter 1 of John's book. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. John doesn't use his platform and his popularity to promote himself. Instead, he continually points to Jesus. In fact, he says, the reason I'm here, the the reason for my existence and my ministry is I have come so that he might be revealed. And it was through John's work that the groundwork for Jesus' ministry was laid. Jesus would come and the other gospels to be baptized by John. And at first John says, no no way, who am I to baptize you? It's not that Jesus needed to be baptized for his sin to be washed away, but Jesus was already showing that he would be the one to take upon the sins of the people around him. And through his baptism, we see God open John's eyes to who Jesus really is. That the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus as God's chosen one. The other gospel writers also include in the moment of Jesus' baptism this proclamation from the Father saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see through John's ministry that Jesus is recognized as the Lamb of God, the the Passover Lamb who would take away our sin. And through John's ministry, we see Jesus publicly affirmed by the Father and by the Holy Spirit. And all of that led me to wonder this week, you know, if John's ministry was to lay the groundwork, to, to pave the way for Jesus, what would it look like for us to do the same? I was talking about that with Chris this week, and he said, when I think of laying groundwork or, or clearing the way, paving the way, I think about all the construction that they're doing on Villa City right now. Uh, I mentioned this during our uh, annual meeting uh, earlier this morning, but if you come from Highway 50 direction, there's about 3,500 homes going in on our road. And they've been preparing for this, cutting down trees and building up the right grading and and the soil levels and the dirt levels and clearing debris piles and and all of these things that are going on to to get get out of the way of the the roads and the sidewalks and the homes that are going to be there. And when I think about this kind of clearing out, you know, clearing the things that often block Jesus' message or block what he wants to do in us, I think, are there things that get in the way of what Jesus wants to do? And I don't even mean like the big, obvious, sinful things. So that's definitely a part of it. But I think sometimes it's just the, the busyness, the daily grind of life that can get in the way of what Jesus wants to do. It, we, we are busy with work and kids and appointments and sports and schools and clubs and co-ops and the, light, the list could go on and on. And with everything going on, I think it becomes increasingly easier to crowd out Jesus 
to not carve out specific time to be with him and, and listening for what he would have us do. Sometimes it's not even something bad that gets in the way of Jesus. Sometimes it's just us. But I think what we find from John's example is that paving the way for Jesus ultimately means getting out of the way. You think about those dignitaries coming into town. What would that be like if the construction crews were still on the road when he came? What would it be like to build these houses around bulldozers and steamrollers? Eventually, those things that clear the way have to get out of the way. And as Jesus' ministry begins to take off, some of John's disciples begin to get a little concerned. I know this would shock and surprise you, but us preachers can sometimes struggle with ego. Uh, not myself, of course, other people, but I mean, sometimes it's hard to see someone else getting the praise and, and the notoriety. And John's disciples see Jesus' ministry begin to pick up and, and they're defensive for him. And they come to him with concern for his ego in John chapter 3. Verse 26, it says, they came to John and, and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Like, the, like, he's stealing your shtick. To this, John replied, A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and now it is complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John's disciples, they, they come to him and they say, hey, hey, John, this Jesus, he's taking all of our people and he's taking your baptism thing and everyone's going to him like, Jesus is stealing your thunder. And John just, I love that Jesus looks at him and he's like, well, yeah, he's supposed to. Like, that's the whole point of why I'm here. Have you ever been to a wedding with an obnoxious groomsman? Like the guy who seems bound and determined to put the focus on him. John says, I'm not going to be an obnoxious groomsman. My job was to be here and take part in the joy of the groom. John earlier said it this way, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He says, I'm not even in Jesus' league. I'm not even fit to untie his shoes. What John is saying is that he's not even worthy to be a slave before Jesus, to carry on the, the, the minimum tasks, the, the menial tasks of slaves at the time. No, John says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. Which is not at all what the world tells us. John has risen to prominence, doing good work for God. He had a, a following, popularity, he's well-respected. And yet he had no regard for his own status because he knew that his job was to get out of the way and let Jesus move. And you might think that because of John's work for Jesus that he should have gotten like a house on the beach and retirement funds and a peaceful life and good health until the night that he dies of pain, pain, painlessly of old age, asleep, you know, surrounded by his loved ones. I mean, that's what you might expect John to get. But if you know John's story, you know that's not what happens. Not too long after this, John will stand up for the sanctity of marriage against Herod, and he'll be beheaded. 
John, in his early 30s, has done everything that God has asked of him, and then he'll have his head cut off. And that feels unfair. Because we often think if we follow Jesus, we do things his way, if we put him first, then our lives should be perfect. Or at least, if not perfect, very, very good. A whole lot better. And trust me, following Jesus does make your life better. But God never promises that life would be easy. He only promises that he will be faithful. John had the humility to recognize that it wasn't about him. That after he baptized Jesus, his race was done, and he handed off his ministry to Jesus because that's what he was there to do. Many of John's disciples then become Jesus' disciples. John's entire ministry was to point people to Jesus and then get out of the way. And I hope that you understand that I am not preaching at you any more than I am preaching to myself. Because I think the question that every preacher has to continually ask is, whose kingdom am I more focused on building? Because if the answer isn't Jesus, then we have no right to be up here. But one particular statement that calls out to me from John's example is one that I think that we can all relate to. He must become greater, I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. What does it mean to become less? What does it mean to decrease? I think it's more about our focus than anything. Do our lives center around ourselves or around Him? How much of Jesus do the people closest to you see in you? Does your husband, does your wife, do your children see Jesus behind your eyes? Do they see him in the ways that you act or react? Is your time whittled away on the things that build you up or build up the kingdom? What about when you open your wallet? What would your purchases say about the one who is number one in your life? Is the amount of you in you becoming less so that he can become more in you? Because let me tell you what happens when we become less and he becomes more. There's less worry and more trust. There's less addiction and more freedom, less confusion and more clarity. When Jesus becomes more and we become less, there's less pride and more humility. There's less fear and more assurance. There's less aimlessness and more purpose. There's less anger and more love. There's less bitterness and more forgiveness. John wasn't worried about putting more John into the world. His popularity, his following, his purpose, his life wasn't as important to him as doing exactly what God had called him to do. Do we have the humility to give all the glory to Jesus and let him do a work in us? One of the ways that we can do that is through baptism. As a sermon on John the Baptist, you had to assume that I was going to get to baptism at some point. But I do think this is true. This is the ultimate way that we become less and he becomes more. Because it is preceded by repentance that we have to recognize that there is something in us that has to change. And that we need to go toward Jesus and less towards our own goals and desires. To recognize the sin in our lives and our need for forgiveness. 
What I love about baptism is that it is more than a symbol, but in the symbol that it is, our old self is put to death, buried with Christ in those waters. And we are raised in the newness of life just as he was. And it's in that moment that our sins are are, are forgiven and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and Jesus becomes our Lord and our Savior. Which means that Jesus makes the decisions. In other words, more Jesus and less me. If that's not a step that you've taken in your walk with Jesus to become baptized, I would love to encourage you to, to talk with me this morning, talk to one of our elders to make a plan, to make that decision, to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. To have more of Him and less of you. To remove the you from what you want to do in your life. So that Jesus can do more as you follow God's will. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And I'm excited to see how you move and how you work through these 10 stories that we're going to look at over the next 10 weeks. That all four of these people recording their testimony about Jesus knew are important to include because of what they tell us about who you are and what you want to do in us. Today, I pray that we would follow John's example of humility, of getting out of the way so that you can do your work in us and through us. I almost hesitate to say that because I know John wouldn't want us to follow his example because he continually points to Jesus, but I pray that we would do the same. That our desires, our goals, our dreams would be secondary to doing your will. God, I pray ultimately that we would become less and that Jesus would increase. That people looking at us would see more of you than, than us, more, more of you than, and then more of us. God, I pray that for those in this room that have not yet made that decision to be baptized, to make that commitment, to make you Lord and Savior of their lives, I pray that your spirit would be working and turning and that we would be able to have good conversations about what it looks like to turn our lives over, to die to ourselves and be raised in you. Jesus, we thank you for your death. It gives us hope because you took the penalty that was ours and your newness of life, this resurrected living that awaits us hope that we have. Jesus, we thank you. Please become more in us. Amen.